Justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a lot going on in this passage, and we're going to do a bit of sipping from the fire hydrant this morning, but let me simplify this for you in, in the clearest possible way. What is this passage about? It is about the gospel. It is a gospel explainer. And even then, it's only really about two different aspects of the gospel. Uh, first of all, Paul describes to us the impact of Adam's sin. So it's describing our need, our brokenness, our sinfulness. And then second, he's going to describe the power of Christ's salvation work. So it's about the gospel. We're going to focus on our sin, focus on salvation, uh, and then we have chapter 5 nailed down. So what does Paul give us this morning when it comes to explaining the gospel? These two essential truths. And the first truth is this. It's that Adam's sin and penalty belong to all who exist. Paul, in familiar fashion for the book of Romans, begins with bad news. Adam's sin and penalty belong to all who exist. Do you exist? Does your heart beat? Are your lungs pumping today? Paul's speaking about you. Adam's sin and penalty belongs to all who exist. And so look at verse 12 with me. See what Paul says here. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Wait just a minute, Paul. What do you mean all sinned? We didn't all sin in the garden. Adam sinned in the garden. How can I be held accountable for something I didn't do? That's not fair. Well, Paul teaches what the rest of the Bible teaches, that sin is not just defined by our actions, but it is our very nature. So we're not just sinners because of what we do. We are sinners because of who we are. Sin is in our actions. Sin is in our words and our deeds. But sin is also sort of at this DNA level. It is core to human existence. When Adam sinned, he sinned as the representative for all humanity. So therefore, the consequences of Adam's sin are also our consequences Sin is our nature, death is the consequence. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul goes on to make the point that this is the way humanity has always been since the days of Adam. But Paul's language is a bit confusing, especially when translated into English, and so let's do a little bit of word work together. Look at verse 13 with me. Paul says this, he says, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. So what is Paul saying here about the period of history between Adam and Moses, between the garden and the giving of the law? I've made a very professional-looking graphic. You're going to be stunned by how incredible this graphic is. I hear the astonishment. Uh, but sometimes when, when I'm studying the Word, I, it helps me to have a visual. 
uh, to just sort of put into my brain a, a representation of what's happening. And so that's what I hope this accomplishes for you. And if it's just confusing, just close your eyes and just listen for the next couple of minutes and we'll get through it together. Paul is discussing the nature of sin. And specifically here in verses 13 and 14, he's making the case that sin's penalty has always belonged with people since the days of Adam. And so he's saying something to us specifically about the period of history from Adam to Moses, from the garden to the law. And so uh, on the surface level reading, it looks like what Paul's saying is that the people who sinned in the time between Adam and Moses didn't have their sin counted against them because the law had not been given yet. But this is where our English translations struggle with a challenging Greek word and concept. Verse 13, the, the phrase that we're concerned about is the one where Paul says, sin is not charged. Sin is not charged, that's the key word, to a person's account when there is no law. So that word translated charged, it's, it's a Greek word, elogeo. You can see it there on the bottom right of the screen. And if you have a different translation of the Bible, it might translate that word as counted or reckoned or imputed. Uh, translators aren't unanimous on just what word should go right there. And this word is a rare word in the Bible. It only shows up one other time in Philemon, verse 18. And there, uh, Paul asks Philemon to elogeho him, to, to invoice him, to bill him for any damages that Onesimus owes him. And so, Paul uses the word in a similar way here, as an invoice or bill or charge to my account, but he uses it metaphorically. So here's what he's getting at. He's saying that in the period of time between Adam and Moses, people didn't have an invoice or an explanation of the charges against them. It's not that people sinned less before the law and then sinned more after the law. It's not that they sinned and were treated as innocent before the law, but after the law, they sinned and were treated as guilty. Remember what he says in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Not righteousness, not life. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. So Paul's point is that from Adam forward, all people are sinners. All sinful people have received punishment for their sin, and the law didn't implement a deeper punishment or didn't lift the old punishment, but rather the law intensified the grievous nature of sin because now we know exactly what God requires. Think of it this way. You visit the hospital, a little while later you get a bill in the mail and it's got an astronomical number on it. And you think, I just had a sinus infection, why do I owe $12 million to the hospital? You have the bill, you have what's owed, and then you call and you ask for a detailed invoice of charges. That detailed invoice of charges serves the same role as the law in this word picture that Paul has given us. Before the law, we had the accounting. We knew we were sinners. Punishment was coming. God gave the law, and now we understand just how thoroughly and totally broken we are in our sin. So in verse 12, all people have sinned. In verses 13 and 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What was true then of the power of sin is true now. This has always been consistent in human history. Adam's sin and penalty belongs to all who exist. 
Well, then we get to verse 14, and Paul gives us this really strange statement. Look at it with me. Speaking of Adam, he says, he is a type of the coming one. What does Paul mean by type? Well, he's saying that Adam is a symbol or a foreshadowing of Jesus. In what way is Adam a foreshadowing of Jesus? That seems like a weird thing to say, especially since through this one man, sin entered the world and all sinned and death reigned. So Adam was a foreshadowing of Jesus in one specific way. Adam's actions impacted all of humanity that came after him. And in that same way, Christ's actions will also impact humanity. When Paul says that Adam is like the coming one or he's a type of Christ, he's not speaking to Adam's moral fiber or, or his accomplishments in obedience to God, nor is he talking about deficiencies in the character of Jesus, as if Jesus is a sinner or, or, or potentially a sinner. What he's saying is that Adam's actions affected humanity, and so Christ's actions will also affect humanity. That's how Adam is a type of the coming one. In that way, they are like each other, but in a host of other ways, they are massively unlike each other. This is the type of stuff that makes for great worship songs. If I were to write one, it would be called Christ the True and Better Adam that you just sang a few minutes ago. When we sing that song, what we're saying is that there's a likeness between these two. Adam is a type of Christ, but Jesus exceeds Adam. His obedience will impact humanity in the way of righteousness and salvation for all who believe. Now, this is where you finally get to voice the objection that you've been holding on to since verse 12. You've been so patient just to hold on to it and to wait your turn. Now it's your time. Here's the objection. Your objection is this. It is not fair that I'm held accountable for Adam's sin. I should be judged on my own life, not Adam's. The game is stacked against me from the beginning. It's not fair. If I were in the garden, I could have succeeded where Adam failed. I didn't elect him as my representative. I didn't vote for him. So why should I be held accountable for Adam's failure? It's a great objection. It's an important objection. And I want to address it by introducing to you a theological concept that you might just roll your eyes at, and that's okay. But it's an important way of understanding and thinking about the gospel story. From this passage, we learn of a theological concept, an idea called federal headship. What did you learn about at church today? We learned about federal headship. This term means that our standing with God is defined by who our representative is. And we have two options. We are either going to be represented before God by Adam, or we are represented before God by Christ. So, so are you saying that I'm not accountable for my sin? No, you are. We are accountable for our sin, for our individual personal sin, yes. But our nature by which we are judged depends on the representative that we possess, either Adam or Christ. You think, man, this is so wacky. 
What do you, what do you mean we have representatives and, and, and I'm going to be held accountable for who my representative is? It's not as foreign an idea as you might think it is. Think of it this way. If your favorite baseball team wins the World Series, you celebrate as if you yourself won the World Series. You aren't celebrating for them, you're celebrating for us. You didn't play. You're not on the team's payroll, but their title is your title. They represent you, and so their championship is imputed to you. It is given to you. Their title is your title. Their championship is your championship. My friend Will is an Atlanta Braves fan, and last year his team won the World Series. And when I saw him after that, I told him, congratulations on your championship. His team won. The title is his. He'll never hold the trophy, hoist it. He's not getting credit for it, but their title is his because his representatives won, and their championship, their victory is imputed to him. That's what we're talking about here in federal headship. Representation and imputation are the normal pattern of God's dealings with people. He always relates to people through covenants throughout history, and every historical covenant includes both the representative, the covenant head, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, someone like that, but also includes all those who belong according to the terms of the covenant. So, Moses is our representative. Abraham, that's our representative. Christ, that's our representative by faith. So federal headship is not some obscure theological idea, but it's the central theme in redemptive history. We've talked about it all the time just without using the label. So the core human problem is this. Our core human problem is that we are born in Adam. He, by our births, by our very existence, Adam is our representative. And his sin and its consequences are imputed to us by the mere fact of our existence. And we are people who sin and who have broken God's law and who are guilty in our own personal actions. But the problem goes deeper than just how I've lived I already possess Adam's guilt and condemnation on my own. I don't live my life as basically good. I don't start out with a clean slate. I start out, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, by nature an object of God's wrath. The bad news is far worse than we ever imagined. Our problem is that we are born in Adam, recipients of his sin and guilt. And the gospel solution is for us to be found in the second Adam, Jesus, and to be given his righteousness, holiness, and eternal life. We could say it this way. We are born with Adam's imputed sin. We can be born again with Christ's imputed righteousness. So so this impacts our understanding of sin in in two really specific ways, at least. First of all, we can't excuse our sin by appealing to our humanity. Uh, I'm only human. That's not a justification. That's precisely the problem. Second, we cannot try to rescue ourselves by our good works or our moral effort. 
moral improvement does not change the core problem of being in Adam. A moral child of Adam is still a child of Adam. Our representative has given to us sin and its punishment. This is true for all people who have ever walked on planet earth since the days of Adam. Adam's sin and penalty belong to all who exist. Paul starts with this truth that is massively important, although it is not easily digestible. But he doesn't stop there. This ultimately is a passage of victory. The tone of rejoicing that, that carried us through verse 11 continues from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And here's where the rejoicing starts with this second truth that Paul gives us, that Christ's grace and victory belong to all who believe. Adam's sin and penalty belong to all who exist, but Christ's grace and victory belong to all who believe. So Paul has just described the sad state of humanity in Adam. That's the bad news of federal headship, but here's the good news. There's lots of good news, overwhelming good news. And Paul starts with a headline at the beginning of verse 15. Look what he says there at the beginning of verse 15. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. What's the gift? Well, the gift is the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And what's the trespass? Well, that's our sin and its punishment. And so Paul gives us this little sentence that serves as a headline to a massive story about the good news that comes to us through Jesus Christ. It's the understatement of the millennium. The gift is not like the trespass. Yeah, it's not like the trespass. It is infinitely greater, better, more incredible. How amazing is our Savior's love for us type of headline. So what Paul's going to do in the next seven verses is this sort of point-counterpoint between what Adam has done, and what Christ has accomplished. Every one of these verses, verse 15 to verse 21, he'll give us an Adam example followed by a Christ example. Point, counterpoint. Adam failed in this way, but Christ is victorious for us in this way. Now, I've done my best to show you this with a really incredible chart that I've put together. I mean, it is a day for graphic design. So just buckle your seatbelts. You're about to be stunned at this chart. You're going to see, <gasps> the chart has three columns on it. Uh, the far left column are the verse numbers. To the right of that is the description in each verse of what Adam has done. Here's the negative things Adam has done. The column to the right of that are the is the, the accomplishments of Christ's obedience. You can see the point-counterpoint as Paul walks through these verses. And I don't know any other way to treat them, but for us to walk through them together. Let's dive in briefly, quickly. Uh, verse 15, Paul says this, For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed to the many? 
So the key phrase here is how much more. He acknowledges that through one man's trespass, Adam's trespass, many died. We've inherited his sin and his penalty. If that's true, how much more has the grace of God and the gift of grace come through Jesus Christ to the many? So the grace of Christ does not merely match the damage of Adam's sin. It exceeds it in every possible quantitative and qualitative way. He completely and totally overwhelms, his grace overwhelms the sin and punishment of Adam. Verse 16, the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. How does God respond to our sin and our guilt? From the many trespasses came the gift. From all of our sin, our sin nature, our sin actions, our sin words, our sin potential, from all of that, God our Father responds with the gift of God the Son who dies in our place for our sin. It reminds me of the verse we read last week, chapter 5, verse 8. God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were His enemies, He made us His children. It's astonishing. Verse 17, since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul again uses the phrase, how much more, to help us understand the massive grace of God to those who turn to Jesus. Verse 18, so then as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act. What, what is that one righteous act? It's Christ's death at the cross. Through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. Here we pump the brakes. What is Paul saying here in verse 18? Is he saying that just as Adam's sin made everyone guilty, Christ's death will make everyone righteous? Is Paul advocating universalism here? No, Paul's not advocating for universalism. And we know this because of what Paul says over and over again about the role of human faith in our salvation. The, the work of the cross is not automatically applied to everyone's account. It is applied to those who turn to Jesus in faith. We've seen this over and over in the book of Romans. More, most recently, it was in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, he says, we have been declared righteous by faith. In verse 2, we've obtained access through him by faith. Faith is the necessary component for our salvation. So what does Paul mean here in verse 18 when he describes Jesus' righteous act as bringing life-giving justification to all human beings He's saying this, that Christ's death is sufficient for the salvation of everyone, but it is only effective for those who believe. It's sufficient for everyone. It is effective only for those who have faith. God's grace is offered to all people. It is received only by those who believe. Verse 19, 
He continues his point, counterpoint. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. When the Bible speaks of Christ's obedience, it's speaking of his submission to the Father's will to go to the cross and bear the sins of those who believe. And so because of the Son's obedience, the Father's wrath has been satisfied and we are given the righteousness of our representative, Jesus Christ. And then verse 20, the law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Over and over he uses this language, how much more? Overflowing, even more. Contrary to popular belief, the law was not an answer to the problem of human rebellion against God. The law only revealed us to be broken as we are in our sin. But where that sin multiplied and intensified, grace multiplied even more. And so, Christian, you can take heart. Your sin cannot outpace the grace of God. God's grace is not given to you in the same measure you sin. As I've already said, it's given even more. And so if you are here today doubting your salvation, fearing the consequences of sin from your past or your present, brothers and sisters, sit with verse 20 until you believe it, that where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. And then finally, verse 21, Paul says this. He says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. Paul speaks here of the reign of sin and the reign of grace, two very different monarchies. Think back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God's first command to Adam and Eve was this, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So in God's original design, we were meant to be vice regents with God, reigning over creation. But when Adam sinned, our rule over the world was upended, and now the world rules over us. But through faith in Christ, the original order is restored so that sin no longer reigns. Rather, grace reigns through righteousness. Look at how the passage ends, ultimately. The last line of verse 20. Grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We started this journey, verse 12, with sin and death entering the world through Adam. We end in verse 21 with eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Adam's curse is removed and God's gift is ours. What have you learned about the gospel today? Paul has shown us two aspects of the gospel that will equip us for all kinds of kingdom service. The first is that Adam's sin and penalty belong to all who exist. The second is that Christ's grace and victory belong to all who believe. So what are you supposed to do with these lessons? And there's only about 8,000 different applications. Let's go by them one by one. I'll just give you a few. Paul's words may help you in a gospel conversation with another person. That person may esteem themselves as moral and good, but they have to know they share Adam's guilt before they can receive Christ's gift. 
don't fall into the trap of getting into a debate about what is sin and what is not sin. It doesn't matter how that debate ends. The reality of Adam's sin is true for every one of us. We are sinners carrying the penalty of our sin apart from faith in Christ because of Adam's guilt. Paul's words may add to your courage. When our culture preaches a message of human accomplishment and goodness and triumphalism, you are anchored in the biblical truth that we are deeply broken and in need of Christ. That sort of stance takes real courage. Paul's words should inform the kind of church that we are. We are a gospel-centered, God-glorifying church, not a church that focuses on God as a means to our preferred ends, but a church with Christ at the center, and you as a member of this church hold us to that. Paul's words should inform the way we treat other people. If God responded to our many trespasses with the gift of His Son for our salvation, then we should never hesitate in loving our neighbor as ourselves. Paul's words should amplify our praise of God. We were dead in our sin, but now we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us eternal life. And there's one more way that Paul's words might be useful to you. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, then Paul's words are an invitation to you to believe. With Adam as your representative, you are in a dark place spiritually. You are guilty and already condemned. Again, you might say, I'm not being treated fairly. And look, I I would agree in part. It is fair to be punished for our wrongdoing. That's fair. But God laid your sins on Jesus Christ at the cross. That wasn't fair. But that's the plan from before the very beginning. God laid your sins on Jesus Christ at the cross, and He credits the righteousness of His Son to you when you believe. God has not given us what we deserve. He has given us what Jesus deserves. And He has given us blessing for curse, justification for condemnation, life for death, hope for despair. God is just. And if you will put your trust in Jesus for your salvation, the result will be eternal life. So brothers and sisters, Paul described our salvation this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, a line you're familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. With that gift in hand, let's live it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this gift, a gift that comes through your astounding love, a gift secured by the true and better Adam. Thank you for the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm grateful that by faith we have a new representative and with that representative we are given credit for his righteousness and holiness. And thank you that with that right standing before you, you empower us. Holy Spirit, you empower us to live in your way, to pursue truth, to glorify you with our words and our actions. So I pray that you would pour out encouragement and courage and strength and and worship into us as we consider the glories of being saved by Christ. 
And as I've prayed coming into this week, Lord God, would you open, open the eyes of faith this morning of friends in here that don't know you, who have worked in their own power to earn a salvation that is not earned, it is given, it is a free gift. And instead today, give them the joy of letting Christ work on their behalf to turn to him in faith and to know eternal life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.